This episode is sponsored by Kendo UI. Kendo UI allows you to build better apps faster. They have a comprehensive library ranging from data grids and charts to buttons and sliders. Plus, you can use their components as plain JavaScript as well as in Angular, React, and Vue. They have a large collection of customizable popular themes like Bootstrap and Material. Go check them out at reactroundup.com slash kendoui. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of React Roundup. This week on our panel, we have Nader Dabit. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest, and that's Josh St. Jacques. Hi there. Did I get anywhere close, or do you pronounce it differently? You got perfect. Awesome. Um, do you want to just tell us uh, who you are, where you're from, what you do? Sure. Yeah. Um, so, like you said, my name is Josh St. Jacques. Um, I am, first of all, married to an amazing woman, and we have two kids with another one just recently found out on the way. Um, oh, so that's a thing. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, we're excited. Um, I am a professionally, I'm a recovering product manager turned uh, full stack web developer. <laughs> and I've been doing that for about five years now. And I love it. Um, today, I'm working at uh, T-Mobile as a software engineer, uh, mostly in React and Angular recently. Um, and But my, my first kind of the language that got me into programming most passionately and professionally was Ruby and Ruby on Rails. Um, so that's kind of where I started my journey. Yes. Yeah. I know the Ruby Rogues podcast, one of my favorites. Um, and yeah, that's kind of me and where I'm at today. Awesome. D Mobile's kind of a big company. Of course, I swear every other year I hear that they're being acquired or <laughs> merging or something. And then somebody kiboshes the whole thing. So I've heard that too. I only started there two months ago, but, um, it seems like we're, we're the ones doing the acquiring now. Um, so, um, fingers crossed. <laughs> Gotcha. Well, cool. Well, let's uh, let's jump in and uh, have a conversation about uh, functional components. Now, do you want to kind of give us a, a quick primer as far as what functional components are and how you think about them? Sure. Yeah, definitely. So in React, there's uh, basically two primary ways that you can declare a component. Um, one uh, is to use the kind of class, ES6 class syntax in JavaScript. Um, and then within that, define a render method to kind of spit out your JSX, um, whatever that happens to be for your component. Um, mm -hmm. The other method is to just write a function um, that um, usually is a, a pure function, doesn't have any state. Um, and you, you have one argument on that function that is your props object, um, and it just accepts whatever you, you need. So essentially, you can define the same thing with a class and a functional component. It's just that the class um, component can do a little bit more and it does it in a little bit different way. Okay. Nader, do you have a preference between class components and functional components? Yeah. So as far as uh, deciding between, you know, the type of component I'm going to work with, you know, I do a lot of React Native stuff and I've been building React and React Native for, I guess, about three years now. And I've gotten to uh, a pretty nice flow where Unless I'm needing some type of state or lifecycle methods, I'll pretty much always use just a regular uh, functional component. Um, and then if I'm building out a brand new application, I'm not sure if I'm going to need state or, uh, state or lifecycle methods. I'll actually just go ahead and use a class. And then uh, later on, if, if we end up not using anything there, we just refactor it into like mm -hmm. a functional component. Um, but, you know, I guess... It depends on kind of your style. I don't know if uh, if there's. I guess there are some people that might say it's best practice to 
um, not use a class if you, you know, if, if you don't use any of the lifecycle methods or state, but I have seen people that actually just, just use classes for everything. And then, um, I'm kind of curious. So what your take is, uh, Josh on the pure component and like when to use that and how that works and how that kind of plays into all this stuff. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I haven't used pure components a ton, but the primary advantage of them is that they're more performant if you can get away with using them. Um, and I think that's the, people have gone back and forth about whether functional components or class components are more performant. And I think in React 16, um, functional components are a little bit more performant, but it's a really minor optimization um, for most applications. Uh, pure pure components are where you're going to get the biggest performance boost if you're, um, if, if that's something that you you need in your use case. Um, definitely. The arguments that, that I make for them, uh, and, and I do basically the same thing. I kind of pull out the class components if I need to and otherwise use functional. Um, but the arguments that I make for them are less about performance in terms of the speed uh, that your application runs and more about kind of like the design of your application and how difficult it is to read and understand and change things later on. So on your team at uh, T-Mobile, who kind of makes these architectural decisions or are the developers kind of um, able to make these types of decisions? And like, where, like, what's your role like in, in the team, just out of curiosity? And I'm really interested to hear more about how T-Mobile uses React too. <laughs> sure. Yeah, no, it's, it's really interesting. Um, uh, yeah, I was fascinated by it when I started too. Um, so as far as who makes the architectural decisions, it really varies by the team. Um, I've been on two different teams here. One was React, and the one that I'm currently on is Angular. Um, they're both supporting a product called Digits. Um, and basically, if if we have a, you know, our dev manager might kind of take an architectural approach and say, okay, this is the direction I want to go. Uh, my experience so far has been it's kind of up to the team lead to decide how they want to how they want to proceed. Um, although the one that I'm currently on has a lot of um, it's probably three years old. Uh, so it has a lot of um, architectural decisions baked in that you kind of need to either respect or, or change um, one way or the other. As far as you know, what we do with React, um, Digits is a reasonably complicated um, web UI. Uh, it's, so if you're not familiar with it, basically what it lets you do is have your phone number work on any internet connected device or have multiple phone numbers work on yours. So like if you wanted to have one number for your business and one number for your personal and one number for your family or whatever, you could do that. You could have that working. Um, so there's a uh, kind of web UI that supports that product. Um, there's a couple different ones, actually. We have one in React and we have one in Angular. Um, and, uh, and so that's kind of the way that, that it's used. Um, but in terms of team size uh, on the React project, I had actually come from a lot of startups and smaller companies. Um, and, and then I went to T-Mobile and worked on this React team that had, you know, maybe, gosh, I think when I started, uh, probably 20 different developers on it. So that was a big change for me. Um, and, um, and so, yeah, it's, it's interesting to, to see the way that it's used there. That's really interesting. So uh, on a big app, it seems like um, just having read your, your blog post, it, it seems like a lot of what you're pushing as far as the functional components go is just making things simpler in, in the way that you write code. And the functional components tend to do that over the, the class or class, classical components. Yes. Is that, is that generally true or have I kind of missed the picture here a little bit? No, I think at its core, I think that's right. So I'm, 
like I mentioned before, kind of my background is more object-oriented programming, you know, like Ruby in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm a really big fan of um, kind of the solid principles and, and the idea of clean code anyway. And the core of most of those principles is, generally speaking, you want to break things down and have them as small as possible, especially if you're going to test them. Um, and so I see the way that class components can accumulate logic and responsibilities very easily and how it, there's a little bit of a barrier to that with a functional component um, where you actually have to make the choice that, yeah, I'm, I'm going to convert this thing if I want state or if I want lifecycle props or whatever the case is. Um, and so that I think forces the developer to take a step back and ask, like, is this the place that state needs to be managed? Like, okay, I'm in this presentational component. Should it my state be there or maybe I should have a container for this component or some smart component that's kind of managing state and either rendering different components or um, passing in different props or things like that. So it's basically a way of not necessarily enforcing, but encouraging um, small units of highly focused, easily testable code. So you mentioned um, like state and kind of uh, uh, this is kind of out of the scope of the discussion, but maybe it isn't because I'm kind of curious like if your decision on state management ever affects how you build out your uh, components. So for instance, if you're using Redux or MobX or maybe uh, if you're using some GraphQL implementation, does that really affect the way that you kind of build out your components or does it just have a single philosophy regardless of the state management? Um, well, I mean, to some extent, I, I primarily use Redux, or I have in the past anyway. And so it's opinionated about how you manage state, certainly. But I, I think at the end of the day, you, you want to, I want to try to separate kind of dumb presentational components from the components that are managing higher level things, whether that's state or business logic or whatever that happens to be. Um, and so React Redux, I think, gives you a really nice way to do that with the container pattern. Um, but you're going to, I think, generally approach it in a similar way and that you have some kind of either higher order component or a smart component or something that's going to kind of be pulling the puppet strings um, instead of, ideally, what I want to avoid is I have a component that's quote-unquote dumb. It's just rendering markup, but then I go and I shimmy in some some state that's going to change because now, if you think about it in terms of testing, like especially if you're doing test-driven development, now... Um, instead of just testing that you're getting the output you expect for the props that you send in, now you have to wonder, okay, what's I'm going to do something with this component, and then I'm going to assert that my state looks a certain way. And then and so you, you go down an entirely different kind of testing path. Um, and so I, I think in, in tests, it becomes apparent very quickly that like this thing is doing a lot of stuff. Um, whereas if you try and separate those into your smart components and your dumb components, then your test suite gets simplified to at least one at a time when you're looking at it that way. And I guess another thing, you mentioned that with React 16, that the pure, uh, or I'm sorry, not the pure components, but the actual, the functional components, or you said that they are faster than the class. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of curious. So before React 16, were, 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 was there more of a trade-off, I guess, there? Before React 16, I, I, I have a really hard time finding any concrete proof one way or the other. Um, I, I've, there are a lot of very competent programmers who say that, uh, functional components were slightly slower and some that say that they were slightly faster. Um, the, the core difference was that under the hood, what React would do is it would take your functional component and it would convert it to a class component. So there's that extra step and it's still going to go through all of the same checks. So I think it, in reality, it was probably a little bit slower. Um, and I think a lot of people were implementing them in the hope that one day they would be faster. Oh, that's interesting. I had no idea that that was actually going on under the hood. 
Yeah, it was yeah, cool. it was interesting. Like superficially, it seems like it should be faster because it's just a function. But um, now now that's actually the case. Functional components in React 16 go down an entirely different code path, so they don't have to do any of the checks that you would do with like a class component. Well, and I guess if the concerns or capabilities are different, then yeah, short circuiting any work that you don't have to do makes a lot of sense for performance. Yeah, and I, I was certainly like you're. It, it's it's situation dependent, right? Like if you've got an application where every millisecond counts on every render, then I would probably take a slightly different approach. Like I would, I would be all about those pure components in that case. Um, I think the applications that I have experience on, that's been less of a concern and it's more about managing the overall complexity of the application and how do we work together as a team to make changes to it. I'll buy that. So do you generally then start with a functional component and then if you find that you need the functionality offered by a class component, uh, refactoring it? Or do you start the other way? Or do you sit down and think about it first and hope you picked right? <laughs> um, maybe, yeah, maybe a little of both. Um, so I usually, I try to start with a functional component. Like that's my default. Um, but I also try and, and think about like, okay, if the feature that I'm building out, clearly some state or some life cycle is necessary. Does it belong in the component that I'm working in? Like it's really, it's easy. And I've done this a lot too in the past. Like, okay, I'm, I'm working at a component all it does is render some JSX. Does that mean that I should put my state in this component and convert it? Or should I, maybe the state goes in a different place, basically. Like maybe I should consider where that goes. Um, and what I'm really trying to accomplish is that the, presentational stuff is separated um, from kind of the logic and the state management stuff. Um, sometimes I do convert it over, um, but in, in especially on a larger team, one of the pain points that you'll run into are things like merge conflicts, right? Your, your mm -hmm. diffs get really noisy really fast when you're converting components back and forth, which is another kind of um, disincentive to converting the components if possible. Yep. So uh, and let's let's talk through this blog post a little bit um, I mean, it, it's pretty concise as far as what the points are, but I think there's probably a little more discussion around it. Um, one of the things that you pointed out is that uh, the functional syntax encourages smaller focus components. And uh, I can kind of see that, but part of me also thinks that part of it's just your style as far as how you break things up. So you, you probably have a methodology for doing that. And you could probably break it up just as easily into those smaller focus components with class components. So, so what is it about the, the functional style that forces you or encourages you into that smaller focus component paradigm? So it's a, yeah, that's a great point. You certainly can. You can write class components that um, only do one thing, like they're, that, that really adhere to single responsibility principle. They, they only have one reason to change. They're very clean. They're very concise. You certainly can do that. My experience has been that like when I'm developing in a class component, it's really tempting to um, just toss my state in there or toss my um, extra, like I've got some piece of business logic that really belongs in like a utility function, but I can just create a, a class function that implements that for me. And then what ends up happening over time is that a relatively simple presentational component can turn into like a hundred plus line class component because it's got kind of all of this baggage that it starts to accumulate and carry with it. Not necessarily the case. And if, if you're very you know self-disciplined about it or you have a, a team that has a very strong code review process and you, you really think these things through before pushing out all the time, then um, you certainly can. 
Like it's it's not the case that 100% of the time you should never um, do that. It just tends. I think I think a, a lot of maintaining code quality is really about like psychology and how how do we tend to approach problems. And so if I can take that decision out of my hands and can kind of have a way of making it a little bit more painful for me to add uh, or to make it, the component that I'm working on bloated, then I tend to try and do that. Gotcha. So I'm kind of curious, has your um, philosophy about building React applications like changed over over time? And I'm kind of curious, like the differences between like the decisions you're making now versus when you first started writing React and um, maybe some insight around those uh, those decisions, I guess. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, gosh, I think when I first started, I, I think probably the biggest thing was that I, I did have that tendency to um, just create semi-monolithic components, um, mostly because I wasn't familiar with the design patterns to kind of break them up um, or when that would become necessary. And when I first started, I, it took me a while to figure out, like, how do I how do I TDD a React component? Right? Like, I was fairly familiar and, and comfortable with TDD in, like, Ruby. And, um, or like vanilla JavaScript and that seems, you know, logical to me, but moving over to components that got a little bit harder. Um, and so figuring out that, oh, well, I can do this smart, dumb component separation thing. Um, and then I know as soon as I see a functional component, like this can't have state, this can't have lifecycle props. So there's whole classes of test paths that I immediately don't have to go down, um, when I'm writing out those, um, those tests. So that's probably the biggest thing that, that's changed for me over time is just um, trying to separate out those concerns a little bit better. Um, and also, I would say, like, trying to keep the design patterns that I do use relatively simple and consistent, like not constantly switching between whatever the latest thing happens to be, like whether it's higher components or render props or, you know, whatever, just keeping it consistent, getting comfortable with that. Um, and just try and keep the code that I am using relatively clean. Deploy more, pay less with DigitalOcean, the simplest all-in-one cloud computing platform for developers. Scale and run cloud applications faster and more efficiently with effortless administration tools to robust compute, flexible configurations, networking services, real-time alerts, and rapid provisioning while enjoying industry-leading price-to-performance with a flat pricing structure across all global data center regions at any usage volume. Spend more time building better web apps and less time worrying about managing infrastructure with DigitalOcean. Build your next app on DigitalOcean. Get started with a free $100 credit at do.co slash roundup. So that's another interesting thing. Um, with uh, with render props and versus hardware components, like what's your take on that, and does that also affect whether or not you write a uh, you know functional component? Just out of curiosity. So that's a great that's a great question. I haven't done a ton with render props. I think I've, I'm becoming a grumpy old man and just want to stick with. <laughs> you know what? I'm the same way. Actually, I'm glad that you said that. I like HSC. I still like HSCs because I've gotten into a few situations with render props where I end up with. Just gobs of extra JSX for no reason. <laughs> yeah, I, I've seen a little bit of that. And like, I can't tell if I'm just dense or it's more complicated, but I have a harder time grokking a render prop component than I do like I order a component. And that I would assume is probably just me not having worked with them a ton and getting into the mindset where they make sense. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's that case where uh, there's a thing that I understand and I can use it to separate responsibilities cleanly. And I also, I also think it depends on kind of how you're architecting your app overall. Like if you've got a um, 
there's some axes of change that you really want to optimize for, then render props might make sense in one particular scenario versus higher order components, depending on what you want to be able to switch out and, and how you want to be able to kind of compose those units of code together. Um, so it, it depends. I don't have a strong preference between the two other than just I'm more familiar with higher order components and I refuse to adapt and change. Yeah, for me, I mean, it's also, you know, I've gotten used to, um, well, actually, I've, I, I understand both pretty well, because when I was teaching React and React Native, we taught how to actually build that render prop, um, you know, pattern from scratch, I guess, um, as far as like, uh, more uh, advanced topics around React. But um, like, I do like the separation of concerns. And again, and I agree with, with what you said about, it depends on the situation. There are areas, there are times, I guess, when you're using other people's libraries, especially where uh, render props, uh, you know, work and they make sense and they might be the right tool for the job. But I, I just really like having my data um, separated from my view and, and then just being able to access the data. Yeah. And you know what? I might be, uh, I might be biased to a little bit because I, part of my background coming from like Ruby on Rails monoliths was I saw some fairly poorly architected projects where that, that I worked in and that I contributed to certainly that mess, but where you'd open up a view and there would be like tons and tons of business logic sitting in that view. And, and that, um, I think I, I might have some PTSD left over from those days and I try to <laughs> try to avoid that as much as possible. Yeah. I, I, well, it's, it's not limited just to rails. Any people do this in, in all yeah. kinds of apps, you know, you, even where you have a good separation of concerns, like say in rails or, um, you know, in certain aspects of Angular, React, or Vue, you know, it's like, hey, we tend to put these things here and these things there. It's really easy to have it bleed over. And so, oh, yeah. you know, I definitely see that with, with the different approaches that you have. And I'm also fairly gratified to to hear, because I think a lot of people, yeah, they hear about the new thing and it's like, well, why aren't you using, you know, you're, you're talking about render props. And, you know, the idea is, well, I understand what, you know, what, what they do for me. I understand what the trade-offs are. And so I'll reach for them when they're the appropriate tool and I'll reach for something else when that's the appropriate tool. I mean, I can hammer a nail in with the back of my screwdriver, but the hammer tends to work better. Yep. No, I, I think that's absolutely true. And you're right. I, I don't mean to rag on Rails. I, I love it. It's still my go-to yeah. like server-side um, tool. And, you know, I've been on Angular projects, for example, where you open a service and it's 5,000 lines. And that's, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> That's not an exaggeration, unfortunately, but. Oh, I believe um, it. Yeah. It, it's really easy to do. Like, oh, I've, I've just got to add one more thing. I'm not going to, you know, <laughs> I break it out at this point. So, yeah, I mean, we've, I think we've probably all done it. I know I've done it. So I'm just trying to discipline myself into doing it a little bit less. Yep. So for people kind of uh, new to React, is there a certain thing that you would kind of tell them about, uh, about building uh, React applications? having to do with, uh, you know, choosing between the two or is it more just uh, just best practice and, and it doesn't really change over their time of learning the framework? Um, I guess I would say that whenever you, my kind of broadest piece of advice would be whenever you start getting comfortable with whichever pattern you're using, that's when you should really start exploring the other option that's out there and, and just keep doing that and keep yourself a little bit uncomfortable. Because um, when you when you get really comfortable, like let's say you write nothing but functional components and you double down on it and you use a library like Recompose, uh, which lets you kind of write functional components that have things like state and, and use uh, lifecycle methods. Um, 
The problem is that you're never going to see the trade-offs of using class components instead and, and put your mind in that kind of way of thinking that that leads you down the path of why other developers might use them. So it's really important to understand what the trade-offs are and, and kind of learn that. Um, so that's that's one piece of advice that I would give is keep yourself uncomfortable. Don't uh, only have one tool in your belt, like Charles was suggesting. And um, otherwise than that, I would just, uh, generally speaking, try and use functional components if you if you can. And then when it becomes painful, switch over to a class component. I think generally speaking, if you adhere to that, you're going to be just fine. That makes sense. Now, I have kind of a noob question. Um, I'm still pretty new to React. You were talking about using functional components and then having some other uh, state management like Redux. So can you do that and avoid class components altogether? And why would you or would you not want to do that? Um, well, you, I mean, you could store all of your state in your global like Redux store mm -hmm. um, and keep it out of your components altogether. Um, you could, I, I, generally speaking, I would discourage that because there's a lot of overhead that comes with putting something into a Redux state. Um, so, for example, if, if you're, for anyone who's not familiar with the kind of Redux pattern, um, there's a, a set of functions that you need to create for populating and accessing things in and out of your store. Some people call them ducks, I think, but basically it's action selectors and reducers um, mm -hmm. to kind of put things into state and get them out of state. Um, and it's, it's real overhead, right? It's, it's a lot more complicated than just saying, you know, Hey, this component is a class and this class has a state. Um, right. Um, so I would tend to avoid, um, that I, I really would only put things into your global state if you actually need them accessible, like all over your application. Um, and, and nowadays with things like the context API, um, there are a lot of use cases that people used to have just a few months ago that, um, they may not even need it for, um, simply sharing state between components anymore. You might actually need like a really um, aggressive kind of use case to, to put it into state uh, or global store anyway. Um, other methods of managing state, I mean, you can use, you can use higher order components, um, mm -hmm. kind of move oh, yeah. state up, up the chain and then use kind of controlled props to decide in, in, what props are going to render within presentational component, or alternatively, you could actually have it render entirely different components. You know, you might have, um, if you're using something like atomic design, which is this uh, one particular pattern of breaking out components, um, then you might have a, you know, a disabled button component and you might have an enabled button component or something like that, or kind of your default primary. And then you just switch between them instead of altering um, props. And one advantage to doing that is then you've, again, broken them out into smaller chunks where you don't have conditionals. Um, inside of each one. Um, so there's there's lots of ways that you can do it. Um, generally speaking, I just to try to avoid putting state in like the lowest level component um, if it's not necessary. That makes sense. So you manage your state and things at a higher level, and then you use the functional components for your interface and things like that that are basically stateless. Yeah, it, if you think of the, the functional components as essentially just dumb view code. Mm -hmm. uh, trying to um, keep the logic at a level where it can be reused and where it's clear, like where it lives and what it does. So um, have you taken a look uh, very much at some of the new features and the newer versions of React as far as like the lifecycle methods and also possibly even the new features that are going to be added later on 
Um, and I'm kind of curious what your take is on some of those features, if you've looked at them. Sure. Um, well, I mean, I, I just ran into the deprecation issue with um, with the component will receive props, things like that. Um, there's a number of lifecycle methods that have been deprecated. Um, and there's uh, one of the new ones that I've worked with recently was um, gosh, something like get get props from state or something like that. Yeah, get derived uh, state from yeah. props or something like that. <laughs> yeah, get derived. That's that's the one that I'm thinking of. Um, and it was a little bit, it, it actually took my brain a little bit of rewiring because it doesn't work quite the same way as like a, you know, component will receive props. And like basically when you have a component and you want to do something when the props change, and like you're looking for them changing to a particular value or something, before you would just do component will receive props and you would... Um, do your checks in there and do whatever it is you're going to do in there. Um, that was deprecated. So now you use this other, this other form. Um, and it's actually like a, a static, I think it's a class, uh, class method. Um, so it's kind of interesting. It's, it's a little bit different pattern than we've seen before. Um, don't have any complaints about it or strong feelings about it one way or the other. Com the, the, the thing with component lifecycle methods for me is always, there's a danger there that like, you do something really inefficient and then you're doing that inefficiency every time the component updates. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. Yeah. For me, the static get derived state from props has been, um, I've had a few times, I guess, where that's been kind of tricky for me because you can't access this anymore. So if you have any class methods that you need to access, um, that you were accessing from component will receive props, you have to kind of rethink how you thought that out. <laughs> yep. Which I guess, what they say is an any pattern anyway, because they're trying to make you not be able to do that. So I guess, I guess it's pushing people in the right direction. Maybe it's working, I guess. So are there any, uh, features, especially to components, since that's kind of what we're focused on that you, uh, you wish they would add that would make things easier for you to write components in this style? You know, not, not that I've run into, not that I've, you know, I, I haven't run into any limitations and been really frustrated by things that I couldn't do in a, in a, functional component um, uh, other than the things that you would get by converting it to a class component. Um, and honestly, I wouldn't, I don't know that I would advocate for adding those abilities to it mostly because then, then I'm, you know, from my, from my point of view, you're kind of back to square one where, okay, now I can do everything in, the, in this one place. And so I'm probably going to tend to do everything in this one place. So I, I like that it's a little bit limited um, and that it forces me to consider like where the code that I'm writing is going to live. Um, so I don't, I don't have any, any big complaints about that. At the end of the day, components, I mean, we think of them as, uh, this kind of special thing because, you know, it's, it's different. It's react a little bit different than what we're used to. We, um, but they're really just functions or classes. That's all they are. So all of the best practices, all of the clean code techniques that you would consider when you're writing a function, when you're writing a, a class, they all still apply. Um, and, and I think if we think about it that way, then I really don't need it to do anything, anything fancy or anything special. I'm sure somebody who's more of a power user and is down there, I would imagine that there's probably some some good requirements around um, like performance uh, that we could see, uh, like something like a pure component for function uh, might be interesting. Um, but other than that, I, I can't think of anything. All right. Well, Nader, do you have anything else to bring up? No, not in particular. Um, is there anything that we haven't really covered, Josh, that you'd like to kind of talk about we can bring up as a topic? Um, I would say 
it, whatever decision gets made with this, we kind of talked a little bit about like who makes the decision with this stuff. Um, one thing that I would I, I, that I would argue is very important is that your your team and you are on the same page. Um, you don't want to have a back and forth fight and and get over which style we're using. Um, so have the have the debate once and use something like a linter to enforce that, um, so that you're not like constantly changing each other each other's code without adding any real value. And if the team decides that hey we want to use class components everywhere, that's fine. It's more important that the team's all on the same page than that you're using one paradigm over the other. I I would argue, especially on a on a larger team, it'll get really messy really quick. Yeah, that makes sense. Actually, one one example from Ruby um, just came to my head. Um, Charles, you might be familiar with this, but like hash rockets, you know how they converted those over to uh, more a more JSON-like syntax in uh-huh. Ruby 1.9. That so like um, there's a lot of different code bases I've worked in where people will fight back and forth over which which format are we going to use. <laughs> so yeah, I think it's it's good to get on the same page. Yep, and to your point. Um, in my projects, I use RuboCop to mm-hmm. actually do the linting. So it, it checks. So if you use a hash rocket, it'll complain at you. Yes. A hash rocket instead of the colon. Yep. Yeah, and on a, on a recent project I was on, we actually had a pre-commit hook. So if, if the linter wasn't passing, you couldn't commit your code. So it was very aggressive. Um, but it is it is nice not to have that discussion right. over and over in, in code reviews. Yeah, Absolutely. All right, Josh, uh, how do people find you online if they want to, uh, you know, keep tabs on what you're working on or things like that? Um, well, if I have any thoughts about uh, programming in general, I write a blog at reactingonrails.com. Um, and uh, I'm also on Medium uh, at Josh St. Jock uh, is my, my slug. Awesome. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up this portion and go do some picks. Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers, or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course and ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks to two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or are looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. Nader, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I have two picks. Uh, the first is a blog post uh, written by Pearl Latier, I think her name is. And it's called A Tale of Four Components. And it's kind of, uh, for me, it was kind of an introduction to writing web components. But um, it's actually... Um, kind of like a breakdown of how to, I guess, write web components. And it shows a couple of different ways, um, you know, using Polymer and also, I think, Nutmeg, which is the first time I've actually even heard of Nutmeg, which is pretty cool. So um, it's just a short, concise, really well-written blog post I would definitely recommend checking out. You can probably go to Google and just search for a tale of four components, or you can go to her website. It's uh, bindyworks.com slash blog. I think it's actually the company she works with. It's uh, their their blog. And then uh, my second pick is a blog post I published uh, this week with Tyler McGinnis on tylermcginnis.com. It's kind of uh, showing how to build chatbots using React in AWS. So a lot of, um, a lot of the applications these days uh, are moving or, or they're having some type of implementation of, of voice and chat. 
And uh, we kind of show how to build that out using, uh, using a React app. So check that out. It's on TylerMcGinnis.com. Awesome. Um, I'm going to jump in here with a few picks. Uh, the first one is uh, there's a conference coming up in October in Park City, Utah called the Framework Summit. And uh, that's being put on by Joe Eames and a few other folks uh, out in this area. And the idea is is to get all of the different people from the different communities around uh, front-end frameworks and have conversations and talks relating to front-end development that aren't as heavily focused on uh, one particular framework. And so I think the first day they have like a state of the framework talk on probably, a, you know, 10 frameworks or something. Um, I'm actually giving one of those on Stimulus.js, which came out of Basecamp. It's uh, the JavaScript framework out there from uh, DHH and company. Um, but yeah, so they're going to have a whole bunch of other talks about, you know, Webpack in general and, you know, th things that are, are more general to frameworks, as well as a few that are sort of focused in particular areas of crossing over between frameworks and things like that. So uh, it should be really, really interesting. And uh, I'm really looking forward to it. So if you want to come out and hang out in Park City and uh, all that good stuff, um, go check it out. It's frameworksummit.com. I think they're on Twitter too, at Framework Summit. Um, but yeah, that should be fun. And Park City's beautiful in October. So um, you won't be disappointed unless you came out expecting to ski. Um, it probably won't have snowed by then. I, I was going to mention uh, Podcast Movement, which is coming up in a couple of weeks. I'm going to that as well. But this episode will come out after that. Um, if you are a podcaster and you go to some of these, like uh, next year, I want to go to, I think it's PodFest. It's in February in Orlando. So if you, know, if you go to some of the podcaster events, podcaster conferences, things like that, and you want to meet up, let me know. I love connecting with people. It's interesting to me how many people I've connected with at the podcaster events that are listeners to the the shows. So um, we'll definitely pull that together. Um, I'm also going to be at CES. So if you're in Las Vegas or will be at the beginning of January. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to talk then. And then um, one last uh, pick that I have, and this is totally not code or conference related. Um, I've been working on my yard. Um, we've lived here for like eight years. And um, it, it's been this back and forth battle between the weeds and the grass. And I finally gave up. And so uh, uh, I sprayed it with Roundup and stuff like that. Uh, killed it all off, tilled it under. And um, the tiller that I, I rented and uh, um, I'm going to rent a, a Bobcat a skid steer uh, tomorrow. And I'm basically going to be moving a whole bunch of dirt and mulch around in my yard. All of that came from Home Depot tool rental. So if you need a particular tool or a specialized tool or a tool that you're not willing to buy, but you kind of need for a day or something, um, Home Depot tool rental is actually pretty nice. A few other things that I have rented from them in the past. I've, I've, I know people who have rented like the big fans that, you know, so if you have your house flood or something, um, I've had some friends, you know, use that to dry out their carpet. Um, I've also rented... Uh, floor sanders and um, pipe crimpers and things like that. So, you know, if you're doing plumbing or anything like that, they, they have all that stuff that you can just rent over there. Um, and yeah, those are my picks. Uh, Josh, what are your picks? Hey, um, so 
the first one that I have is um, if you're a programmer and you like me, you like to listen to music and you like to listen to it, you know, while you're code, but listening to music like with lyrics or music that you normally listen to, um, for me anyway, it actually makes it harder for me to focus and be productive unless I'm working on something really mindless. Um, so my first pick is actually video game soundtracks. Um, uh, there's a ton of them on like Spotify, um, but basically the, the music in video game tra- soundtracks is designed to keep you focused and kind of move the action and the storyline along without getting in the way. So it tends to be, I found a really good fit for that. Um, so there's, there's a couple artists on there that make music for lots of popular video games, but uh, Frank Lepecki and Simon Vicklund are a couple examples. Um, so that's one. Um, I re- I'm sure this has been picked before, um, but it's been really helpful to me. So I will pick it again. The um, VS Code extension um, called GitLens um, has been super awesome. I, I get more use out of um, Git logs, Git history now than I ever did before. Um, and it, it has a really nice way of displaying who edited what kind of in line in this kind of fake comment off to the right uh, as you're working through code. And you can hover over that and see what actual change was made, which kind of puts everything in context. And it's super handy. Um, and then last but not least, it's not all related to code. Um, I've been on the ketogenic diet for like eight months now and lost a ton of weight. And I'm really happy with that. My actual pick though is um, one thing that I've been missing a lot is ice cream because it's loaded with carbs and sugar. Um, and there's a, a brand of ice cream called Enlightened my wife discovered recently. Um, it's one, it, it tastes really good. Like I couldn't tell that it was, there was anything special about it. Um, but two, it's very low carb. So if you're on something like a ketogenic diet, it can actually work really well. Um, so I would, I would toss that out there to anybody who's, um, you know, can't have sugar or is on a diet like that. Nice. Plus one for the keto diet. I've actually done that and, um, it works ridiculously well. <laughs> yeah. Same, same here, especially for me, it's just the fact that I, it's, it's not hard. Like I, when I'm hungry, I get to eat and that's nice. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm doing the keto diet as well. I'm diabetic and it just helps me keep things under control. I've lost uh, about 30 or 40 pounds on it as well. So yeah, sometimes I just need something sweet and it's funny because I'll actually go and get something that doesn't fit the diet (laughs) sometimes when I, when I want it. So this will probably be helpful. So awesome. I hope so. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming, Josh. Thanks for having me. I'm a huge fan of uh, this podcast, but all of the, Dev Chat TV podcast. Like I said, the, the first one that I started listening to, I think, was Ruby Rogues. And um, I've been hooked ever since. So thank you for all of the, the content that you put out and, and the work you guys do every week. Well, thanks. I, I enjoy put them, putting them together. I know Natter does a bunch of work on the React Native Radio podcast as well. And uh, yeah. Yeah, and JavaScript Jabber was my introduction into podcasts in general. And yep. I've been hooked ever since as well. <laughs> We're yep. Corrupting developers one podcast <laughs> at a time. <laughs> Awesome. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up and we will catch everybody next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. <laughs>